Gute outside. There was a pause. Yeah, well, the offering, I didn't want to get started until we had everything out of the way. Okay, let's uh, get ourselves back in line and, and align our hearts to the Lord as we come to his word. And uh, let's just pray. Father, we thank you that your word is sharp. Your word is alive. Your word is uh, not just text, ink on paper, or black dots on a white dot on a screen, but it's actually sharper than a two-edged sword. And it can penetrate and separate spirit from soul and it can penetrate our hearts and bring us to the place of alignment correctly with you so we ask lord in the midst of all that's going on around us that you allow us to focus our hearts now to hear you through the words that will be shared and we thank you and we pray this in jesus name amen yeah you know, family is like that, right? Ever been to Thanksgiving or Christmas uh, dinner and then uh, kids come in and kids come out and family comes in and family comes out and it's all, all over the place. So we're okay with that, right? We accommodate and we live together and we are happy with what the Lord is doing. Uh, last week I was sharing with you from Genesis chapter 3. I took it right back and, uh, you know, I've often told you that Genesis is my favorite book in the Bible. And today I'm going to help you understand a little bit more as to why. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, right after God created Adam and Eve and gave them all the animals and animals of all kinds, plants of all kinds, uh, he had warned or told Adam, basically, give him one law, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of good and of the knowledge of good and evil, because the day you eat of it, you should surely die. So, with all that's going on, Satan comes in the form of a serpent. He tempts Eve. Eve looks at it. She saw that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. And she took, ate it, and also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it, and their eyes were opened. And they realized that they were naked and made coverings for themselves. So the awareness of sin... Right at the get-go, in humanity's very beginnings, the awareness of sin brings about guilt. And you can see this in our children, the youngest of our children. When they do something wrong, immediately there's something that kicks in inside. We talk about a certain age of innocence and an age of awareness. When they cross over from being little infants and small children that are very innocent about what they do and they may actually do something wrong but not realize it. They're just still happy. There's no shame on their face. There's no guilt. They're not afraid of what you're going to do. And they talk to you in such a way that they're just... Like, and we call it innocent. And something happens in people, in organizations in nations, where we cross a threshold, we cross over a certain line or boundary, and all of a sudden we say that we have lost our innocence. And this happens in all kinds of things, not only with children, but with Adam and Eve, they were mature, full-grown adults, created with wisdom and understanding, and they knew all kinds of things, would walk with God daily. God would visit them in the garden, and they would walk with him. I can not even imagine the kinds of conversations that they would have had. 
I dream one day to watch those videos. The conversations that Adam had with God in the garden. Before sin. What were some of the things that God would have explained to Adam? I think that they were very meaningful conversations. I can only imagine how meaningful. Because God is God and he is all-knowing. And he's not just going to come walk in a garden that he created with his creature, his son Adam, and not have meaningful conversations. They would be looking at a butterfly fluttering, and maybe God would explain something about the process that a butterfly goes through becoming a butterfly from a, a worm or a uh, caterpillar. Caterpillar, pillar, pillar. And explain to Adam what that's about and why Adam's children will need to know what that's about. You and I. He may have ex- explained some secret things. And you know, in the book of Daniel, God describes himself as the revealer of hidden and secret things. So he, I'm convinced they would have had amazing conversations. What happened to them and how that information, what happened to it, we don't know. Later on in the next couple of verses, we read these same things. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord. They're familiar with that sound. They know the sound of God. They know the voice of God well. You know, his footsteps in the garden. The animals may be behaving differently because they see their creator. I'm imagining these things. They're not in the scripture. But I can only imagine. I mean, we we accept it when we watch it in Lion King as to what happens when Mufasa walks through and all the things that change and everything else and the animals and the buzzing and everything else. I'm not going to change and become a sounds effects expert, but anyway. And Adam says to, to God that he was afraid and he hid. And the issue of guilt and shame and fear all kicked in at the same time at that very early stage in humanity. And last week I showed you this. I said that there are three in this triangle. I'm sorry the, the screen is so dim. I'm not sure what's going on. And I talked about the different parts of the world, different aspects of society. Now, I was making huge generalizations, right? I hope you know that. I'm not saying that everybody from uh, the West lives in a culture of guilt and innocence because we have law and order. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that, generally speaking, we have inherited these foundations. Thank you. That's so much clearer. We've inherited these foundations and we find them present in different parts of the world. So the West, the Western world that's been influenced by all kinds of philosophies, we have law and order, we have the rule of law and we hold that to be very important and we submit ourselves to that. We function in a society of guilt and innocent. If you're guilty, you have to pay the price. If you're innocent, hey, you get all kinds of privileges. In the, in the East... We have a culture of shame and honor, predominantly, not only, not exclusively. But we see that in the Middle East, we see that in the East. And in the South, we have a culture of fear and power. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that today. Uh, but to help us in transitioning, I, I came across this story. A 104-year-old woman had just gotten married to her fourth husband. Okay, I think you all know that this is going somewhere. 
And a reporter finds her and interviews her, and he wants to find out uh, what happened. Who's this guy that you married? She's a famous lady, 104, you're not, you know. So he asks her, what is this man's profession? And she says, well, he's a funeral home owner. And then the, the reporter says, uh, what about your other three husbands? Well, she says, my first husband was a banker. Okay, my second husband, well, I loved him very much. He owned a circus. And the third husband was a pastor. So the reporter scratches his head and he says, but these four men have nothing in common in terms of profession. She goes, ah, but you don't understand. There was a purpose behind these weddings. One was for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four, here we go. (laughs) Anyway, better, better not tell jokes, right? Stick to... Okay, thank you. But this helps us understand that there's order in even this woman's thinking. So I thought we would spend some time in the book of Genesis, and I could, this stuff really excites me. How many of you enjoy reading Genesis? One, two, three, four, five. Okay. How many of you enjoy reading the lists of names in Genesis? One back there, two here. All right, three. All right, so today we're going to spend some time looking at some of these names in the book of Genesis. And we're going to look at ten generations. The generations from Adam onward. Okay? To the flood. The first one is Adam. He was born at, I'm going to call it year zero. That's when God created Adam. Okay? We're not going to debate how old that is and how far back. It doesn't matter. But from the book of Genesis, we read that Adam lived to be at 930 years old. And when Adam was 130 years old, he had his first son, Seth. And Seth lived to be 912 years old. And when Seth was uh, 105 years old, in other words, when Adam was 235, Seth was a father of a man he named Enosh. And Enosh lived uh, 905 years. This is all in the book of Genesis. It's all in one chapter. You probably don't like to read that. Most people don't. And most people don't feel it makes any sense. I'm weird. I like to visualize things. So I created this chart to help me understand who was alive when. Who was alive when who was born. And that's a mystery for me that I'm thrilled about. I like to know who was alive. I like to know who died when. Not generally, but at least in this chapter of Genesis, that kind of stuff thrills me. So, Enosh was 90 when he had his firstborn, and he named him Kenan. And he lived, Kenan lived 910 years old. And when Kenan was, how old was Kenan? When Kenan was 70, he had his first son, Mahalel. And Mahalel lived to be 895 years old. But before that, at the age of 65, he had Jared. And Jared lived to be 962 years old. And at 162, that sounds, that sounds like a chapter out of Genesis, doesn't it? Jared was 162 years old when he had his first son, Enoch. And Enoch walked with God. And at the age of 365, he was no more. God took him. He didn't die He just disappeared. He vanished. He was raptured. Enoch never died. It's interesting. 
Anyway, so when Enoch was 65, he had his son whose name was Methuselah. And Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. And at the age of 187, Methuselah had his son, the firstborn son. His name was Lamech. And Lamech lived to be 777 years old. And Lamech, at the age of 182, gave birth, or his wife, gave birth to Noah. And Noah lived to be 950 years old. And at the age of 500, Scripture says, Noah had his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That, to me, is fascinating. When you look at it like that, it tells a story. It tells us that even after sin, when God had created Adam and Eve, they lived on the earth and the family multiplied and there were multiple generations living on earth at the same time. Does that mean anything? That means that the conversations that Adam would have had with God, the understanding that Adam had received... From what happened when they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That would have been conversation that he would have had with his son, his grandson, his great-grandson, his great-great-grandson, his great-great-great-great-grandson, all the way to the last man that lived when Adam was still on the earth. They would all gather around and once in a while, I would expect, just like our conversations with our generations, that there would be stuff that's handed from one generation to the other. So the flood happened, and the flood happened actually when, you know, Methuselah was the oldest living human. He lived at uh, 969 years old. And his name means something. It means that his death shall bring the f- something. It shall happen at his death. Meth or met in, in Hebrew means death. His death shall bring is what the name means. What a name. So his death, the year that he died, would have been 1656, and that would be exactly 100 years after the kids were born. In other words, at the age of 600, I'd do the math, 15, uh, 1056 plus 600, when Noah was 600 years old, the flood happened. So all of these people, those first eight, all died before the flood. They didn't drown in the flood. They died before the flood. Methuselah's death was on the year that the flood happened. There was many other people outside of this family line. Seth was the third born of Adam's children. His firstborn was Cain and Abel, right? But this is the lineage of Seth. Cain and Abel had, one had killed the other, so Cain's family had multiplied, and they have another family line altogether. That's for another day. But in this family line, this is what happened. So the last son to be born, or the last child to be born, in the lifespan of Adam, was Noah's dad, Lamech. Do you think he would have talked with Adam? Everybody on the planet would have wanted to talk to Adam. The guy without a belly button. Think about that. Everybody else was born of a woman. They had the umbilical cord. Adam was not. 
Maybe God was a cosmetic surgeon enough to put one in for him. I don't know. But they all knew that Adam was different. Grandpa Adam was the guy that they went to. So he was born at the age of, uh, here, 874 years of age was Adam when Lamech was born. And Lamech was 56 when Adam died. Do you think in those 56 years there would have been conversation? There would have been advice. There would have been stuff that was shared, for sure. So when we look at this, this fascinated me. When I realized that all of these men existed at the same time, and they shared stuff together. And I looked at these ten generations, from Noah to Lamech to Methuselah, all of them. And each one of them, not just Methuselah, each one of them, their names have meanings. Now, this is not theology. Okay? This is not Bible teaching. This is just hidden gems that are in the Bible that tell us stories. So I'm not formulating a theology based on this. I'm just trying to find stuff that encourages me as I read the scripture. So when I'm looking at these men, Noah's name means rest. Okay? Lamech means the despairing. Why a mother would call her child the despairing for another day. Methuselah, I told you, his death shall bring. Enoch means teaching. Jared means shall come down. Mahalel means the blessed God. Kenan means sorrow. If you read the scripture, you understand why the parents named him sorrow. Enosh means mortal. And Seth means appointed. And Adam means man. Okay, so what? Well, when we read it this way, it doesn't make sense. But will you read it from the bottom with me? Let's read it out loud. Man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring the despairing rest. You want to read that again? Man appointed mortal sorrow because of sin. The blessed God shall come down teaching about the kingdom of God and his Father in heaven. His death, the blessed God, shall bring the despairing humanity rest. So the ten generations are not just the generations, but these ten men become the gospel summary of the entire Bible story. That's hidden in Genesis. I love it. To me, that's an encouragement. It's not theology, but it helps us understand that our God is a generational God. Any one of these men not being born or not being named would have made this whole story hiccup. You follow what I mean by that? You are an integral part of the dynamic story of God that is unfolding. You and your children, you and your parents are part of the chain link that God has put into history that tells the goodness of his story. Thank you. (laughs) Everybody plays an integral role. Everybody has a very unique part. Any one of these people, missing, not born, not named, wouldn't make it complete. So why am I telling you all of this? 
Because our God, I told you, is a multi-generational God. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 3, when the people of Israel, having spent 400 years in the land of Egypt, had now become slaves of Pharaoh, and they were under the pressure of Pharaoh, he was, they were being tortured, and they wanted freedom. And all they could remember is that their grandfather, Abraham, had been given a promise by God that they would be a blessing to all the nations. They would be blessed, and they would be blessed uh, a source of blessing. But they're now living as slaves to a pharaoh in Egypt. So they would cry out, and God decides that he's going to appear. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over the, uh, to look, and, and God decides to appear in a burning bush for Moses. Moses had already left Egypt. He had you know, killed a, a Jewish, uh, an Egyptian uh, slave master, and he had run away. In the midst of all of that, God shows up and appears to him, and he calls his name, Moses. And Moses says, I'm here. Don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. The place that you're standing is holy. And he said, I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Our God is a multi-generational God. What we are doing today has to have legacy to be able to impact the generation of our children and our children's children. A lot of times we only think of our next generation. But our God is a multi-generational God. He's affecting the lives of Jagap and Sujin so that they can affect the lives of Joshua and Macy so that in turn they would be called good men and women because a good man and a woman leave a, an inheritance for their children's children. So that Joshua and Macy's children would be affected by the legacy of what Jagap and Sunil are living out today. What did I say? I'm sorry. And Sunil downstairs. Yes, that's what I meant. <laughs> but that's, hard. that's our God. He wants us to think along those lines. He wants us to function along those lines. He wants us to understand everything along those lines. And this is what he is calling himself. But he didn't just say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said the God of your father. In other words, Moses, your father plays a key role in this. It's not just the inheritance that I've given to the family of Abraham, but this is specifically within your family line. Your own father, your flesh and blood father, I have stuff that I'm doing with him. You today are that person, the God of your father. And the generation of kids that are coming up behind us, those that are born of us in the flesh and those that are born of us in the spirit. We are responsible to impart to them something that they will be able to carry to the next generation and the one after that. So every one of these. So Abraham, the God of Abraham is not what he calls himself only. But he doesn't even just say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That could be confusing. But he actually names himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Why? Because Abraham lived in such a way that Isaac now had ownership of the God of Abraham to make him the God of Isaac. You follow what I mean? It's not just an inherited relationship. 
It's a personal relationship that Abraham has now been able to demonstrate enough for his son to step into it. In other words, Jagap and Sujin live well enough in their faith that Joshua and Macy make their God their own God. So it's not just the God of Sujin, the God of Jagap, but it's now the God of Joshua and the God of... I'm sorry I'm picking on you, but hey, I hope it's okay. So it's the God of Joshua. Joshua has made a personal commitment You've given us your testimony a few weeks ago. He is becoming more and more of your God. And you're growing in your understanding of who he is. And you're stepping into that place of making him your own God. So that when the day comes and you stand waiting on the side of your wife's bed and she gives birth to your child, that child will know that daddy's God is now going to be my God because that God is faithful. And the legacy continues from one generation to the other. That's what we're working towards here. We're not just working about people being saved and fill the pews and and everybody's happy and the church is growing. We want to leave a legacy. So we have to restructure how we think. We have to restructure how we plan everything that we do so that we can impart this from one generation to the next so that there's a legacy. And as you're waiting for your baby and what you're doing and everything that's happening and the babies that are going to come, there's something that will be here that people can touch because the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is a living God. And he's now become the God of us who are your fathers in the spirit and the God of others that are your spiritual fathers. And he is becoming one by one our God. Because he's the way maker, the miracle worker, the light and the darkness, the promise keeper. To each one of us. The testimonies that we hear and the stories that we tell aren't good enough if they don't translate into your own experience with him. He wants to own the relationship with you. He wants to step into that place where he can reveal the secret things of his heart. To you. In your own context. In your own family. And he will do that. Oh. Did you notice this? It looked like I had chapter 3 of Genesis up here. Do you remember chapter 3 of Genesis? God was coming to visit Adam and Eve, and Adam heard him in the garden, and he hid. And when he came and asked him, why are you hiding? Adam said, I heard your voice, and I hid. Why? Because I was afraid. We still are living in a culture of fear. But God wanted to flip that on its head. Even with Moses. And for that, come next week. (laughs) I'm going to stop right here. Come next week. And we're going to talk about how God dealt with the fear that still exists all these generations later in Moses' life and in your life and mine. So let's stand up and pray. We have a few minutes. Lord, you came on earth teaching. And one of the things you taught was how we should pray. 
But more important than how we should pray, you taught us something very key in that prayer. To call the God of all creation our Father. So Lord, he's not just the God of our fathers. He's now become our own God, our Father. Lord, you have become our Savior, so we are free from all guilt. You have become our friend and made us free of all shame. And you have become our Father to set us free from all fear. Lord, we've come from different places and different contexts. Some of us have not had good fathers, and we have been taught to fear our fathers. And somehow we transpose that to you. Some of us have had great fathers, but yet they are imperfect nonetheless. So, Father, as we talk to you and as we grow in you, our prayer is that you heal our hearts. Teach us how you love us. Help us understand the fullness of your love. Help us understand the fullness of how you impart that love without prejudice, without measure. That it has nothing to do with our worth in our own mind, our guilt or our innocence, our shame or our fear. Lord, your word tells us that perfect love casts out all fear. So, Lord, help us as we move forward to come to understand the fullness of your goodness. Help us understand how we translate that to our relationships within our homes, within our friendships, within the church, and within society. Lord, have your way. May your kingdom be visible in our midst. May your will be our experience. May your grace forgive us from all our sins. May your kindness supply all our needs. May your kingdom and your power be visible and manifest within each one of our lives and our lives together. We thank you and we bless you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Have a wonderful week. May the power of God continue to flow through every moment of your life. Be blessed and we'll see you here next Sunday.